Section 9 of Historic Adventures Tales from American History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Historic Adventures Tales from American History by Rupert S. Holland. Chapter 7 How the Mormons Came to Settle Utah. In the winter of 1838-39, to 39, a large number of people moved into the country on the east bank of the Mississippi River, in the state of Illinois. They had taken the name of Latter-day Saints, but were generally called Mormons, and were followers of a new religion that had been founded by a man named Joseph Smith a few years earlier. This strange new religion had attracted many people to it, and the greater number of them had first moved to Ohio, and then into the new state of Missouri, but they were not well received by the people of either of those states, and had finally been driven from Missouri at the point of the sword. Fortunately for them there was plenty of unoccupied land in the west, and their leader had decided to take refuge near the town of Quincy in Illinois. At that time a man had only to reside in the state for six months in order to cast a vote for president, and as an election was near at hand, the politicians of Illinois were glad to welcome the Mormons. Looking about, the newcomers found two paper cities, or places that had been mapped out on paper with streets and houses, but had never actually been built. The Mormon leaders bought two large farms in the paper town of Commerce, and many thousand acres in the country adjoining, and there they laid out their new city, to which they gave the strange name of Nauvoo. The Mormon city lay along the Mississippi River, and its streets and public buildings were planned on a large scale. People flocked to the place and as the Mormon missionaries were eager workers, the number of converts grew rapidly. A temple was built, which a stranger who saw it in 1843 said was the wonder of the world. Many Mormon emigrants came from England, usually by ship to New Orleans, and thence by river steamboat up the Mississippi to Nauvoo. By the end of 1844, at least fifteen thousand people had settled there, and as many more were scattered through the country in the immediate neighborhood. Nauvoo was the largest city in Illinois, and its only rival in that part of the West was St. Louis. Joseph Smith had obtained a charter, and both the political parties, the Whigs and the Democrats, were doing their best to make friends of his people. Nauvoo had little of the rough look of most newly settled frontier towns, and handsome houses and public buildings sprang up rapidly along its fine wide streets. Unfortunately for the Mormons, their leader was a man who made enemies as easily as he made friends. He had aroused much ill feeling when he lived in Missouri. As a result, when one day in May, 1842, Governor Boggs of Missouri was shot and seriously wounded while sitting at the window of his home. Many people laid the crime to Smith or his followers, and believed that the prophet himself, as Smith was called, 
had ordered the shooting. The officers of Missouri asked the governor of Illinois to hand Smith over to them. This was not done, and consequently ill-feeling against the prophet grew stronger. In the meantime, a man named John C. Bennett, who had joined the Mormons at Nauvoo, and had been the first mayor of the city, deserted the church, and turned into one of the most bitter of its enemies. He denounced the Mormons in letters he wrote to the newspapers, and exposed what he called their secrets. This led other people to attack the ideas of the Mormons, and it was not long before there was almost as much dislike of them in Illinois as there had been in Missouri. Even in the Mormon church itself there were men who would not agree with all the prophet Joseph Smith said. A few of these men set up a printing press, and published a paper that they called the Nauvoo Expositor. Only one issue of this sheet appeared, dated June 7, 1844. That was enough, however, to raise the wrath of Joseph Smith and his elders, and they ordered the city marshal to destroy the press. The marshal broke the press and type in the main street of the city, and burned the contents of the newspaper office. The editors hastily fled to the neighboring town of Carthage. The people there and in all the neighboring villages denounced the destruction of the press, and declared that the time had come to force the Mormons to obey the laws, and, if they would not do so, to drive them out of Illinois. Military companies were formed, cannon were sent for, and the governor of the state was asked to call out the militia. The governor went to the scene of the trouble to investigate. He found all that part of the east shore of the Mississippi divided between the Mormons and their enemies. He ordered the mayor of Nauvoo to send Mormons to him to explain why they had destroyed the printing press. And when he had heard their story, the governor told them that Smith and his elders must surrender to him, or the whole military force of the state would be called out to capture them. But the prophet had not been idle. He had put his city under martial law, had formed what was called the Legion of the Mormons, and had called in his followers from the nearby villages. He had meant to defend his new city, but when he heard the governor's threat to arrest him, he left Nauvoo with a few comrades and started for the Rocky Mountains. Friends went after him and begged him not to desert his people. He could not resist their appeal to him to return, and he went back, although he was afraid of the temper of his enemies. As soon as he returned to Illinois, he was arrested on the charge of treason and of putting Nauvoo under martial law, and, together with his brother Hiram, was sent to the jail at Carthage. Some seventeen hundred men, members of the militia, had gathered at the towns of Carthage and Warsaw, and the enemies of the Mormons urged the governor to march at the head of these troops to Nauvoo. He knew that in the excited state of affairs there was danger that if these troops entered the city they might set it on fire and destroy much property. He therefore ordered all except three companies to disband. With one company he set out to visit the Mormon city, and the other two companies he left to guard the jail at Carthage. 
the governor marched to Nauvoo, spoke to the citizens, and having assured them that he meant no harm to their church, left about sundown on his road back to Carthage. In the meantime, however, events had been happening in the latter place that were to affect the whole history of the Mormons. The two smiths, Joseph and Hiram, with two friends, Willard Richards and John Taylor, were sitting in a large room in the Carthage jail, when a number of men, their faces blackened in disguise, came running up the stairway. The door of the room had no lock or bolt, and, as the men inside feared some attack, Hiram Smith and Richards leaped to the door, and shutting it, stood with their shoulders against it. The men outside could not force the door open, and began to shoot through it. The two men at the door were driven back, and on the second volley of shot Hiram Smith was killed. As his brother fell, the prophet seized a six-shooting revolver that one of their visitors had left on the table, and, going to the door, opened it a few inches. He snapped each barrel at the men on the stair. Three barrels missed fire, but each of the three that exploded wounded a man. As the prophet fired, Taylor and Richard stood close beside him, each armed with a hickory cane. When Joseph Smith stopped shooting, the enemy fired another volley into the room. Taylor tried to strike down some of the guns that were leveled through the open door. "'That's right, Brother Taylor. Parry them off as well as you can,' cried Joseph Smith. He ran to the window, intending to leap out, but as he jumped— Two bullets fired through the doorway struck him, and also another aimed from outside the building. As soon as the mob saw that the prophet was killed, they scattered, alarmed at what had been done. The people of Carthage and the neighboring country expected that the legion of Mormons would immediately march on them and destroy them. Families fled in wagons, on horseback and on foot. Most of the people of the nearby town of Warsaw crossed the Mississippi in order to put the river between them and their enemies. In this state of excitement the governor did not know which party to trust, so he rode to the town of Quincy, forty miles away, and at a safe distance from the scene of the trouble. But the Mormons made no attempt to avenge the death of their leader. They intended to let the law look after that. Week by week, however, it grew harder for them to live on friendly terms with the other people of western Illinois, and more and more troubles arose to sow distrust. The Gentiles, as those who were not Mormons were called, began to charge the Mormons with stealing their horses and cattle, and the state repealed the charter that had been granted to the city of Nauvoo. During that summer of 1845, the troubles of Nauvoo's people increased. One night in September, a meeting of Gentiles at the town of Green Plains was fired on, and many laid the attack to the Mormons. Whether this was true or not, their enemies gathered in force and scoured the country, burning the houses, barns, and crops of the Latter-day Saints, and driving them from the country behind the walls of Nauvoo. From their city streets the saints rode out to pay their enemies in kind, and so the warfare went on, until the governor appointed officers to try to settle the feud. 
The people, however, wanted the matter settled in only one way. They insisted that the Mormons must leave Illinois. In reply, word came from Nauvoo that the saints would go in the spring, provided that they were not molested, and that the Gentiles would help them to sell or rent their houses and farms, and give them oxen, horses, wagons, dry goods, and cash in exchange for their property. The Gentile neighbors would not promise to buy the goods the Mormons had for sale, but promised not to interfere with their selling whatever they could. At last the trouble seemed settled. Brigham Young, the new leader of the Mormons, said that the whole church would start for some place beyond the Rocky Mountains in the spring, if they could sell enough goods to make the journey there. So the people of Nauvoo prepared to abandon the buildings of their new flourishing city on the Mississippi, and spent the winter trading their houses for flour, sugar, seeds, tents, wagons, horses, cattle, and whatever else might be needed for the long trip across the plains. The Mormons now looked forward eagerly to their march to a new home, and many of them traveled through the nearby states, buying horses and mules, and more went to the large towns in the neighborhood to work as laborers, and so add to the funds for their journey. The leaders announced that a company of young men would start west in March, and choose a good situation for their new city. There they would build houses and plant crops which should be ready when the rest of the Mormons arrived. But they knew there was always a chance that the people of the country would attack them, and therefore they sent messengers to the governors of the territories they would cross asking for protection on the march. On February 10th, Brigham Young and a few other men crossed the Mississippi and selected a spot on Sugar Creek as the first camp for the people who were to follow. Young and the twelve elders of the Mormons traveled together, and wherever their camp was pitched, that place was given the name of Camp of Israel. The emigrants had a test of hardship even when they first moved across the Mississippi. The temperature dropped to twenty degrees below zero, and the canvas-covered wagons and tents were a poor shelter from the snowstorms for women and children who had been used to the comforts of a large town. Many crossed the Mississippi on ice. When they were gathered on Sugar Creek, Brigham Young spoke to them from a wagon. He told them of the perils of the journey, and then called for a show of hands by those who were willing to start upon it. Every hand was raised. On March 1st the camp was broken up, and the long western march began. The Mormons were divided into companies of fifty or sixty wagons, and every night the cattle were carefully rounded up and guards set to protect them from attack. From time to time they built more elaborate camps, and men were left in charge to plant grain, build log cabins, dig wells, and fence the farms, in order that they might give food and shelter to other Mormons who would be making the journey later. The weather was all against their progress. Until May it was bitter cold, and there were heavy snowstorms, constant rains, sleet, and thick mud to be fought with. 
but like many other bands of American pioneers, the Mormons pushed resolutely on, some days marching one mile, some days six, until May 16th, when they reached a charming spot on a branch of the Grand River, and built a camp that they called Mount Pisgah. Here they ploughed and planted several acres of land. While this camp was being pitched, Brigham Young and some of the other leaders went on to Council Bluffs, and at a place north of Omaha, now the town of Florence, located the last permanent camp of the expedition. The trail of the Mormons now stretched across all the western country. At each of the camps, men, women, and children were living, resting, and preparing supplies to cover the next stage of their journey. But in spite of the care with which the march was planned, those who left Nauvoo last suffered the most. There was a great deal of sickness among them, and owing to illness they were often forced to stop for several days at some unprotected point on the prairies. Twelve thousand people in all shared that Mormon march. The Gentiles in Illinois did not think that the Mormons were leaving Nauvoo as rapidly as they should. Every week from two to five hundred Mormon teams crossed the ferry into Iowa, but the neighbors thought that many meant to stay. Ill-feeling against them grew, and a meeting at Carthage called on people to arm, and drive out all Mormons who remained by mid-June. Six hundred men armed, ready to march against Nauvoo. When the Mormons first announced that they meant to leave their prosperous city in Illinois, men came hurrying from other parts of the country to pick up bargains in houses and farms that they thought they would find there. Many of these new citizens were as much alarmed at the threats of the neighbors as were the Mormons themselves, some of them armed, and asked the governor to send them aid. The men at Carthage grew very much excited and started to march on Nauvoo. Word came, however, that the sheriff, with five hundred men, had entered the city, prepared to defend it, and the Gentile army retreated. A few weeks afterward the hostilities broke out again, and seven hundred men with cannon took the road to the city. Those of the Mormons who were left, a few hundreds in number, had built rude breastworks for protection. Some of the Gentile army took these, and the rest marched through the cornfields, and entered the city on another side. A battle followed between the Gentiles in the streets and the Mormons in their houses, and lasted an hour before the Gentiles withdrew to their camp in the cornfields. Peaceful citizens now tried to settle the matter. They arranged that all the Mormons should leave immediately, and promised to try to protect them from any further attacks. So matters stood, until May 17th, when the sheriff and his men marched into the city, and found the last of the Mormons waiting to leave by the ferry. The next day they were told to go at once, and to make sure that they did, bands of armed men went through the streets, broke into houses, threw what goods were left out of doors and windows, and actually threatened to shoot the people. The few remaining saints, most of them those who had been too ill to take up the march earlier, were now thoroughly frightened, 
and before sundown the last one of them had fled across the Mississippi. A few days later this last party, six hundred and forty in number, began the long, wearisome journey to the far west, and the empty city of Nauvoo was at last in the hands of the Gentiles. The object of the Mormons was to find a place where they might be free to live according to their own beliefs. So far they had been continually hunting for what they called their own city of Zion. As they spent that winter of 1846-47 to 47 in their camp near Council Bluffs, they tried to decide where they would be safest from persecution. The far west had few settlements as yet, and they were free to take what land they would, but the Mormons wanted a site on which to lay the foundations of a city that should one day be rich and prosperous. They decided to send out a party of explorers, and in April 1847, one hundred and forty-three men, under command of Brigham Young, with seventy-three wagons filled with food and farm tools, left the headquarters to go still farther west. They journeyed up the north fork of the Platte River, and in the valleys found great herds of buffaloes, so many in number that they had to drive them away before the wagons could pass. Each day the bugle woke the camp about five o'clock in the morning. At seven the journey began. The wagons were driven two abreast by men armed with muskets. They were always prepared for attacks from Indians, but in the whole of their long journey no red men ever disturbed them. Each night the wagons were drawn up in a half-circle on the river bank, and the cattle driven into this shelter. At nine the bugle sent them all to bed. So they made their way over the Uinta Range to Emigration Canyon. Down this canyon they moved, and presently came to a terrace from which they saw wide plains, watered by broad rivers, and ahead a great lake filled with little islands. Three days later the company camped on the plain by the bank of one of the streams, and decided that this should be the site of their new city. They held a meeting at which they dedicated the land with religious ceremonies, and at once set to work to lay off fields and start plowing and planting. Some of them visited the lake, which they called the Great Salt Lake, and bathed in its buoyant waters. Day by day more of the pioneers arrived, and by the end of August they had chosen the site of their great temple, built log cabins and adobe huts, and christened the place the City of the Great Salt Lake. This name was later changed to Salt Lake City. It took some time for this large body of emigrants to build their homes. Wood was scarce, and had to be hauled over bad roads by teams that were still worn out by the long march. Therefore many built houses of adobe bricks, and as they did not know how to use this clay, the rains and frost caused many of the walls to crumble, and when snow fell, the people stretched cloths under their roofs to protect themselves from the dripping bricks. Many families lived for months in their wagons. They would take the top part from the wheels, and setting it on the ground, divide it into small bedrooms. The furniture was of the rudest sort, 
barrels or chests for tables and chairs, and bunks built into the side of the house for beds. But at last they were free from their enemies in this distant country. Men in Ohio, Missouri, and Illinois had hounded them from their settlements. But in this far-off region they had no neighbors except a few pioneer settlers and wandering bands of Indians who were glad to trade with them. A steady stream of converts to the Mormon church followed that first trail across the plains. A missionary sent to England brought many men and women from that country to the city on the Great Salt Lake. Brigham Young and the other leaders encouraged their followers, above all else, to cultivate the land. Most of the Mormons were farmers, and what shops there were dealt only in the necessities of life. Food was a matter of the first importance and they had to rely entirely upon their own efforts to provide it. Each one was given a piece of land for his house, and most of them had their own farms in the outlying country. When they were sure of their food, they began to build their temple and other public buildings, and these, like their streets, were all planned on the lines of a great future city. They first called their territory Deseret, but later changed it to the Indian name of Utah. Salt Lake City and the territory of Utah, of which it was the chief settlement, might have remained for years almost unknown to the rest of the United States had not gold been discovered in California in the winter of 1849. The news of untold riches in the land that lay between Utah and the Pacific Ocean brought thousands of fortune-hunters across the plains, and many of them traveled by way of Salt Lake City. That rush of men brought trade in its track, and served to make the Mormons' capital well known. The quest for gold opened up the lands along the Pacific, and helped to tie the far west to the rest of the nation. Soon railroads began to creep into the valleys beyond the Rocky Mountains, and wherever they have gone, they have brought men closer together. But in Utah the Mormons were the first settlers, and no one could come and drive them out of their chosen land. At last they had found a city entirely of their own. They had not been allowed to live in Nauvoo, and so they built a new capital. Like all founders of new religions, the Mormons had to weather many storms, but after they had passed through cold, hunger, and hardships of many kinds, they came to their promised land. Such is the story of the founding of Salt Lake City, the home of the Mormon people. End of section 9 Recording by David Martin